welcome to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. Welcome to King's Church. Good to have you here. Um, We do this thing where we stand up for the reading of the Word. So if you stand with me, we're going to read through this portion of Scripture that we're working through. We're continuing in Proverbs. We've been here since September, going verse by verse through this book. And uh, it's Adultery Sunday, number two. Amen. Can I get an amen? We're continuing this portion of Scripture. And so if you'll all read it out loud with me in verse 7 starting. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near to the door of her house. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. Lord, we just thank you for your word. God, we thank you that um, it's living, it's alive, that it's from you, God, that all the scripture was inspired by you to communicate your heart to us. Lord, in this story, in this scripture, Father, that you have some truths about who you are and who we are. And God, I just ask that it would be sown into our heart, these words would be like seeds that planted in that are planted in our heart to produce God life in our life in an abundance in Jesus name everybody said amen Amen. give a neighbor a high five and and you can be seated or give him some skin is that a thing we do anymore do we do give me some skin that was a really gross kind of sounding I don't want your skin I'm happy with my own skin I don't want to share skin with anybody unless I'm in a covenantal marriage relationship with him Speaking of Adultery Sunday. (laughs) Um, Good morning. (laughs) Sometimes I say awkward things, and I don't mean to. It just is how God made me. Um, Hey, listen, welcome to King's Church. Um, Our church is this little K, King's. It's not the big king. Jesus is our king, but we believe that we're actually supposed to be turned into his image and likeness, right? And the, the analogy for our church, the metaphor, if you will, that is our branding thing is that we're not only supposed to be priests, which is a spiritual role, doing spiritual things, having a spiritual life, but also being kings, that we are called to do earthly things and and implement God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And it's this twofold role we find in scripture. And part of the way to do that is to know God's way and his word and then apply it to our lives. Amen. So um, we've been reading through Proverbs and We've been going verse by verse from Proverbs 1.1, and now we're in 5 in this portion. And this whole chapter is about adultery. And it's kind of weird. It's a weird chapter. Um, Most Christians that I know, and our church is mostly Christians, would already, you would think, say, like, adultery is a bad idea. We don't really have to have a discussion about it. Let's just move on down the road. Like, we know that's a bad idea. Let's not do that and be done with it. The, the, the interesting thing about doing this version of teaching that we do at King's Church is you don't skip the parts that are uncomfortable. 
And as a pastor, as a preacher, it's really easy to want to skip the parts of Scripture that are uncomfortable and say, you know what, this is probably not going to get high fives and people retweeting my message or listening to the podcast. We have a podcast, by the way, on Spotify and on podcasts. Um, but bizarrely, the stuff like this is stuff that we don't often hear in our current American church culture. For instance, our Sodom and Gomorrah message is the number one listened to podcast on our podcasts. Isn't that bizarre? And you would say, why is that? Because people aren't talking about that kind of stuff in church. And when you go scripture by scripture through the actual word of God, you see things and you're like, man, that's not a really, that's not like a birthday cake message, God. You know, I want, I want a birthday cake. I want a party. I want everyone to high five. But some days we have to look at the hard stuff. Amen. Like some days we have to actually confront the hard things and say, am I living in this kind of way, God? Am I being an adulterous person in my relationship with you? Or am I giving you my whole heart? Am I living for you with everything inside of me? And it is, um, it is immature of us as believers to never be able to look in the mirror at, at the scripture itself and say, God, please hit me with your best shot. And you're not doing it because you want to wound me or hurt me or punish me or because you're a masochist and you like to cause pain to other people. You're doing it because I'm a son or a daughter and you love me desperately and you want to draw me closer to you so that my life is like heaven. And do we know heaven is a good place? Do we know that the streets are covered in gold? We know that it's full of God's goodness. We know that there's not a shed tear, that there's not pain. It's, there's no brokenness anymore. God wants our life to be like that. But it doesn't go like that if we pursue ways that aren't his ways. I was in Washington State a couple of months ago, and I was talking to my pastors. And I have my own kind of pet, maybe not sins, but things that I think about all the time and wonder if I'm doing poorly. And when I go to a leader or to somebody that can speak into my life, oftentimes they tell me the things I should be worried about are not the things I'm worrying about. And so, for instance, my kids, I'm always wondering if I'm being a good enough dad and spending enough time with my kids, right? I'm a pastor. I have a law practice. I'm a busy person. Um, we live in New York City. We're all busy people, right, in New York. But I'm, I feel like I'm a little extra busy with both the church and the law practice. And so I wonder all the time, am I spending enough time with my kids so that, you know, my oldest is 11 now, and in, in seven years he will effectively be out of the house, so I have spent more than half of my, his life, the life that he lives as a child, more than half of that has already been spent with dad. We're on, the, we're on the downside of the mountain, and then he will be off onto the adventure God calls him to. So I'm like, God, am I spending enough time with my kids? Am I encouraging them enough? Am I pouring into them enough? And when I talk to my pastors, they, they're like, you're a fine dad. Stop worrying about that. And then they say to me, but how is your marriage? How much time are you spending with your wife? So last time when I went home, um, we went through the litany of all of my life. We kind of just do an overview of what's going on in the, all these areas. How are you in sexual purity? How are you in drinking and eating? That a, a pastor should say to the people that are with them, right? So I go to my guys, and they ask me about all these hard questions, right? It's like looking at the hard parts of the scripture, and they're like, where are you at with this kind of stuff? And then we get to my marriage, and they said, you are not dating your wife enough and we are very serious about that like the things that you think are an issue are not actually an issue the things that God says are an issue are an issue and so they said to me the one thing you must do moving forward and if you don't we're going to yell at you <laughs> I don't know how they're going to penalize me they're going to spank me I guess but um, they're like you must date your wife every week 
you must weekly date your wife. And you know, as a busy guy trying to take over the world in all these different areas, I oftentimes am thinking of myself and my own kingdom and my progeny and oftentimes not thinking of my wife. And so I have to go to another source for self-analysis to see what is actually the issue, right? And then I can say, ah, and then my wife and I have been dating much, much more <laughs> since, since the beginning of the year, right? Is that correct? Yeah? <laughs> been dating a lot more. We had a great date Friday night, good Friday night Mexican food date. It's always a good date. Um, so, so the thing about our relationship with God is that there are things that we are called to do and there are things that we are called not to do, but we often need an outside source to look at us and our life because we are bad at self-determining. Like we are bad judges of our own self. Most people think they're super clairvoyant when it comes to their own issues. And it's a great deception that we think we like, I know all my issues, I know all my buttons, and there are things that the scripture seems to indicate that are really important. Like Proverbs, the entire chapter is on wisdom, how to become wise, and there are three entire chapters in the book of Proverbs that are strictly about adultery. That are strictly, do not leave the covenant of marriage and chase sexual pleasure outside of that place. And you're like, this is a book, of, there's 30 Proverbs in here, and 10% of the book is about not committing adultery. You would think it's one of the Ten Commandments. We have that one down. We don't need to talk about it. Let's move on. I was looking, reading this Yale article yesterday, and it said that 43% of, of, of Parisians, well, I guess French people, believe that adultery is bad. Which means 57% of them don't think it's that bad. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And then I look at the stats in, in the United States, and there's a, it's about an 80-20 in the United States. But still, 20% of people in our world today think breaking the covenant with the person that you've made a lifetime covenant in front of all of your friends and all of your family that I will be faithful to forever, like that's okay to break that promise. And so I guess on the, first, the front side of it, we have to say, well, why is that not okay? Well, it breaks the world. It breaks the family. It breaks the child. It breaks the husband. It breaks the wife. That kind of act of tearing from the promise that you've made, this greatest promise that you could ever make, tearing from it, and then living in this other life. They say for, they say for young men, boys, they say the boys who see their father do that are stamped with this belief in order to be a real man, I must have multiple partners when I'm married. I must conquest outside of my marriage. And that gets stamped on the heart of a little boy. They say a little girl, this is a New York Times article, by the way. This is not like uh, James Dobson here. They say a little girl, they say her heart um, feels betrayal from the parent, usually the father, because adultery is primarily, primarily, not always, but primarily the father uh, leaving. Um, and she will begin to hate men, and then in future relationships, attempt to dominate or control because of fear of future wounding. And so she's not free to be who she is in the, in, the, in the relationship or the marriage, but because she's been betrayed this way, fear comes and takes a hold, and she says, I must control or else this betrayal will happen again. Adultery breaks the people and breaks the family around it. And so that's, can we say amen to that? That's a bad thing. We want to be aware of that. Um, and that's in the familial kind of, the first place. But 
The scripture all throughout, and this is what I'm going to focus on today, is the metaphor between Christ and the church, the bride, we as the bride, being in a covenant relationship with God. That he's our God, he is our sustainer, he's our provider, he's our life source, he's our encouragement. And this is the metaphor that we're walking through when we're doing this adultery stuff. Um, Because I want to talk about having a heart that's wholly given over to God, a God that loves you so incredibly that he would love you while you're still in your sin. That he wouldn't wait till you've cleaned yourself up and brushed your teeth and went to the doctor and got teeth whitener, right, and tanned yourself a slight light orange and then went to God and said, here I am in the best version of me I can be. Now accept me. It says that while we were yet sinners, Christ loved us and pursued us. And this is the story of Hosea. Hosea is a prophet in the Old Testament, one of the 12 minor prophets who God tells to marry a prostitute. Because God wants to display to us that while we were yet sinners, he loved us that much. See, when people hear the Hosea story, and it's about a prophet marrying a prostitute, when our fundamental, we talk, I just was sharing this earlier, when our fundamental relationship with God is how bad I am, we can read this story and think about how bad we are. But when you have a new covenant perspective, when you've, been, when you've had a revelation of the grace of God, you read this story and you realize it's a story that shows how phenomenal God is. You know, Hosea, his name means the salvation of God. It would make more sense if it was like, guy who marries prostitutes. Or something like, the God, God, when he's in a bad mood, what he does to you, (laughs) if you're following him. It's just weird that the name of Hosea means the salvation of God. And it's in the context of really one of the most adulterous generations in the nation and history of Israel. Hosea is um, a short book. It's one of the minor prophets. And God tells this guy, Hosea, to go and marry a prostitute, an adulterous, somebody who's like got their prostitute card. I don't know if that's such a thing. It's horrible. There's no prostitute card. I'm sorry. Um, And he wants Hosea to experience the brokenhearted relationship that he's having with the people of Israel. And then he wants to show Hosea that he loves Israel more than Hosea could possibly ever do that. After being brokenhearted and brokenhearted and brokenhearted and brokenhearted, he says, and then I will restore you and I will take, turn the valley of Achor or the valley of judgment. The valley of Achor is this valley where when the Israelites first crossed over into the promised land, they took over the city of Jericho. Anybody know that story? Dustin in the battle of Jericho And the walls came and tumbling down Thank you, Jameson. Um, and so they're, they're plant, they're, they, they take down the city, and then Joshua says, okay, take this stuff, and the, the, the plunder you need to bring to the house of God, we're not keeping any for ourselves. This is the first fruit of, of our win, and the first fruit we're giving to God to say, God, you're amazing. Thanks for the win. Don't take, anybody, don't take any of that cash and put it in your own house. And this guy... Um, Akin, I was thinking Acor, thank you, Michael. Akin, he's like, you know what, I'm going to take some of this cash and put it in my own house. And the judgment of God falls drastically on Akin, and he gets, they find out he gets stoned and burned, uh, his corpse is burned, and it's, it's, it's rough. 
But the amazing thing is God says, in the valley of Achan, Achor, I will find you there and I will show you my love and speak to you tenderly. In the place where you're supposed to receive mass judgment, I am going to redeem you with the unbelievable breadth and length and depth and height of my love. Pretty wild. So um, I want to share the primary scripture from Hosea is Hosea 1.7. It says, God says, but I will have mercy upon the house of Judah and I will save them and I will not save them by bow or sword, nor by battle, nor by horses, nor by horsemen, that God himself is our salvation. Not what we do, not what we've done, not our acts, but God himself is the great savior of us. And so we talked last week about sin and the seductive nature of sin. And all throughout the scripture, there are different analogies and pictures showing that sin has a seductive nature. And last week we said there are three primary seductive natures of sin. The pride, excuse me, the lust of the flesh, that it makes me feel good. Like, God, you have this rule, don't do X. And I say, I don't care because it makes my body feel good. My physical body, lust of the flesh. Then lust of the eyes, which is that I look good. Like, the, uh, the idea of pride, like, I, you know, I don't care, God, what you say about X because it makes me look good. And then the third is the pride of life. It makes me better than others. And we see Jesus in his temptation in the desert dealing with these three exact things. Bread, bread to eat for the flesh, the body to feel better, to jump off the top of the tower and have angels catch him, that he looks awesome, right? Who doesn't want to surfboard angels, right? That looks cool. Um, and then finally, that he would be over every city and kingdom on the earth, the pride of life, that he would be literally ruling over all. And we said last week, the amazing thing is that God had these things all for Jesus in the right timing. And sin often tries to substitute God's goodness and his plan for us and say, here, bite of this apple. It is going to make you smart, strong and beautiful immediately. And God says, that's not my way. My way involves a process. My way involves relationship. And the real treasure of my way is relationship with me, not the stuff that you get that's a benefit of that relationship with me. I loved when Gabe was here a couple of weeks ago. He said, Christianity is a religion of relationship. I think that's such a brilliant way to talk about it because it is a religion. There are behaviors and things that we do on a consistent basis. There are ways we act consistently and reminders that we go through, times that we pray, seasons that we come together and fast. But it's a religion of relationship that the consistency is about consistency in relationship with God. And I know I feel like I'm doing rough the days that the primary birth of that relationship happens inside of these walls of the church. Like it's the primary time I think about God. It's the primary time I talk to God. It's the primary time I pray to God. It's the primary time I worship God. I know I'm not doing well in the religion of relationship when this place is the only place of relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came not just so you would know God one hour a week. Amen but that you would walk with him and be with him and he would be your God and you would be his people, right? Not the people that come and watch the God movie once a week, but live the God life. And that's what we're all encouraging each other toward. How can we live this adventure in the God life? Amen? So I'm jumping all over the map here. I want to tell you a little bit about the Baal gods 
and I want to tell you about what the Israelites were doing. In the Old Testament, there were a number of Baal gods. There was a religion called Baalism, and Baalism was, there was a primary Baal, and there were iterations of this Baal gods, but it was basically about controlling the weather and controlling fertility. And you can imagine in an agrarian society when all of your wealth and all of your food and all of your security is based upon right money, dependent upon if the rain comes, Baal in some contexts is called the god of the storm because you hoped that when you sacrifice to Baal that a storm would happen and rain would happen and fall upon your crops. So it's about actual life security. Am I going to be secure in this life that I'm living? And the crazy thing was the, the actual practice of following Baal centered around this act where if you were a Baal follower, you went to the Baal party house. And it really is like a party house. We imagine like dusty roads and poles and people bowing down to like a demon god. It was a place they would come and eat and get hammered and sleep with prostitutes. That's what it was. And when they slept with the prostitute, the prostitute was a temple prostitute, and she was a priestess of the god Baal. And when you slept with the prostitute, the concept was, I am giving my seed over to this, this entity, this god, so that he will rain his seed down upon me. It's about fertility. It's about life. It's about wealth. It's about security. And so the people of God were leaving God himself to have sexual escapade in these bail tents. They had these bail poles outside, and they were having literally sexual encounter after encounter after encounter after encounter so that the God of heaven, of the storm, would rain down upon them. It's such an unbelievable picture of taking God himself and throwing him away, right? The God of the heavens, the God that rules over our weather, over our earth, over our world, the God that blesses the womb and saying, no, there's this other false God, and this is how I'm going to serve it, not by the covenant that God gave, not by the secrecy and sacredness of this Adam and Eve, this man and wife, this Eve that God takes from the very essence of Adam and creates this unbelievable, perfect fit of unity and life and the blessing of sexuality and take that and use the... Listen, this is one of my things. The greatest gift that mankind has is the ability to make other human beings in the image and likeness of God. There is not a greater power that we as humans have than to create other beings that are eternal, that are made in, in the image and likeness of God. And I don't mean, I mean the greatest gift in our natural world. Does that, do you understand what I'm saying? And so that gift, to take that out of the context and beauty and, and the garden of marriage and to cast it upon Obviously, the idea of a prostitute is, is the seed is sown, but it's not sown for the birth of life. The seed is sown only for my own personal enjoyment. And this is an amazing thing that God made. One of the climactic human experiences of coming together, consummating this, this incredible experience of love, almost one of, the, one of the physical pinnacles of human existence is about creating new life. 
Like, that's how much God likes this idea of creating new life. And they're saying, let's take this thing that God gave us, and we're going to cast it towards everything but life. And not only that, we're going to give it to a demon God that will hopefully arbitrarily grant us life from a different source, from a different place, outside of the picture that God gave it to them. Isn't that wild? I just think, like, uh, you know... Jesus says of Satan that he was a murderer from the beginning. And if you read Genesis, you say, like, well, he didn't actually stab anyone. But he wanted, you know, God said, if you eat the, don't eat the fruit of the, of the tree lest you die. And from the beginning, the enemy has been trying to destroy life. And the process of life and the process of procreation and the family. Because the enemy hates everyone created in the image and likeness of God. And that's why he's a murderer, and that's why he's a thief, and that's why he's a liar. And he hates you and wants to destroy you. And God um, wants you to live in the garden of his abundance, with life springing up from you, not by, not by casting it towards the random chance of pleasure and experience that will give you this moment of elation, but actually be devoid of all the life but do it in the context of God's way and his system. Is that okay? So I'm, I'm thinking about the story, and the Israelites are going to this Baal prostitute house, and they're doing this wacky stuff to try to get blessing on their crops. They want security. They're, they're, they're being sexually immoral for their own personal security, right, for their own financial stability. They're doing wacky things in the relationships in their community for their own crops to grow. And God says to this guy, Hosea, who's a prophet, who's a man of God, Hosea, I would like for you to marry a prostitute. Can you do that for me? And I just think about that idea. I'm like, that's absolutely insane, God, that you make a guy marry a prostitute is a really bad idea. If you would have asked me, Lord, I would have said, don't do it. Not a good idea. And I just think about a couple of things, but first of all, about how God's ways are just not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Higher than the heavens are above the earth are his ways higher than our ways. The other thing that's crazy and that's really important to the story is God speaks to Hosea and sometimes asks his people to do strange things. Like that's actually a part of the story of God. It's an outlier, right? There's only a couple prophets that have to do really wacky things. A guy has to walk around naked for a couple years. A guy has to lie on his side for like a year and a half. There are things that God tells prophets to do that are uncomfortable. This is one of them. Just think about us as believers. Like if we even in the modern church have the capacity to hear God say to do something strange. And I don't mean, I don't want you to walk around naked for two years. Please don't do that. But I just mean the capacity to hear God outside of the cliches that spin in your own head. That, okay, all right, God, what are you saying? Uh, I need to repent of my sin. Okay, like, like, the, the, like if you pull the, uh, the, the, the thing on the thing with the wheels and the, and the money comes out. Yeah, thank you, Scott Machine. Like, there are only certain amount of numbers or, or fruits that can come up. And that's literally the limit of your belief in God communicating to you. Do you know in the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, he asks people to do bizarre stuff because he's in actual relationship with them and he actually can speak to them. And it's fundamental to our life in Christ that we believe as Christians that God can talk to us and may sometimes ask us to do things that's outside of our comfort zone. Jeremiah 33, 3. 
Call unto me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things. It's a promise to all the people of God that we can call unto him, and he will speak to us. That he communicates in our heart. He's spirit, so he speaks to us in the spirit. In the scripture, there are only a handful of places where God speaks audibly. Do you know that? There's only a few places where it's actually the audible, cracking voice of God. John chapter 12, Jesus is having a hard time thinking about the cross. And he's like, you know, I don't really want to do this cross thing. It sounds horrible and painful and uh, excruciating. And then he says, you know what, God? I've changed my mind. I'm going to do it. And let you, I want you to be glorified in my life. As crazy as this mission that you're sending me on is, I want you to be glorified in my life. And then it says, and God spoke audibly. One of the very few times in the New Testament that you see that express thing. And it says, and the Father said to Jesus, I have exalted you and I will exalt you again. And it says that those on the outskirts said they thought it was thunder. And some of them thought that it was an angel. So there were many people there that didn't recognize the voice of God even when it spoke audibly. And I'm like, wow, that's really powerful. That a lot of Christians are like, Lord, if you would just give me an audible, clear voice in the middle of my day, don't look at porn, then I wouldn't. <laughs> and it's funny because the people that don't really aren't leaning in to God don't really want to hear him. Even God's voice that's audible to Jesus and the disciples, some believers couldn't hear it. Some followers just thought it was thunder in the day. And there's a faith position of our heart that says, God, I want you to speak to me and be real and communicate with me, even if I don't totally understand it or even if it's to do something scary. And so I was out to dinner last week with my friend, and he took me on a belated birthday dinner. And um, he said, uh, he's talking about his knee. He was doing lifting. He was doing some sprints, and he blasted his knee, and it was causing him pain. He was having a hard time walking. And I'm like, well, I think I should just pray for him in the middle of this high-end restaurant that he's taking me out to, and it's just slightly uncomfortable to lay my hands on this guy and pray for him. You know, the scripture says, um, when Jesus casts, casts, sends out the disciples, he says, and you will lay hands on the sick and they will recover, right? That's why we do it. We don't just do it because we like to touch people, even though I do like to touch some people, you know what I'm saying? Um, we do it because Jesus says, when, if you lay hands on the sick, they will recover. And so we're at the restaurant, and I feel like I'm supposed to pray for him and his knee at the restaurant right there. And he, he's like, let's pray. I'm like, all right. <laughs> so I put my hand on his knee, and I start praying. And I kind of have my method of, of praying. Um, and, uh, you know, all of a sudden you start praying for somebody, the restaurant's getting quieter. <laughs> like, the conversations are getting quieter around you. And uh, I'm like, how does it feel? And he's like, he stands up and he gets up and he walks. He's like, he has this confused look on his face. Like, he's like, it actually feels better. It's almost, it's so demeaning when someone says actually. He's <laughs> like, it actually feels better. I'm like, what percent? He's like, I don't know, like 60% better. I'm like, all right, let's pray a couple of times. I'm not really good at this. Let's keep going. And so we keep praying until we felt like the Lord actually totally healed his knee. And we were walking out of the restaurant down a corridor. And he looked over at me just like, I mean, my knee. And I'm like, yeah, God actually is real. God actually heals people. God actually wants to touch people. God actually speaks to people. It's not pretend. It's not for weirdos. It's actually the way 
that he wants to work in and through you, not just me. I'm not even that good at it, right? I'm like stumbling over my pasta as I'm praying for him. <sighs> Part of the thing about Hosea that I like is that Hosea has a relationship with God that God will ask him to do something very bizarre and he obeys. Again, I'm not asking anyone to marry prostitutes here or sleep on your side for three years or whatever it was, Jeremiah. Was it Jeremiah that had to do the side sleeping? Michael? No? Nobody knows? It's one of those guys. Let's say it's Jeremiah. <laughs> um, the other thing that's interesting about this is Hosea is a relatively short book. It's only 12 chapters. And God uses um, the word I in it a hundred times. Well, you ask yourself, why is that? Because the whole idea is to show how personal God is. He is God, but he is a person, and he wants to know us. He's not an ambiguous force that's sitting upon top of the stars, being ambiguous. He has a personhood. He has a personality, and he wants to know us. And that's why the use of I 100 times in Hosea is perfectly in congruence with this metaphor that breaking away from God is like, can be like committing adultery, or let's say is like committing adultery to God. Like it actually hurts his heart. And I've talked to pastors that don't, or let's not say pastors, I've talked to Christians that don't like this idea. They just don't like the idea that God can be hurt or wounded by what you do. But it's actually biblical. Can I read you a scripture that's a little bit rough? I got one yes, I'll take it. Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, and God is talking to Noah, and he's about to flood the earth. And it says in this portion of scripture, the precursor, it says, and that all of their hearts were consistently always pursuing evil. And it says this in 6.6, and the Lord regretted that he made humans, and his heart was deeply troubled. That's the NIV. This is the NLT, and most translations actually say it this way. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on earth. It broke his heart. That the sin of man actually broke the heart of God, that God's heart was troubled. And it's interesting when you think about an omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, you know, all-good God, how is that possible? I don't know, but his ways are higher than my ways. And my two-dimensional kind of paper analysis of who he is is not the fullness of who God actually is. That when we, as Christians, leave his way and leave his love, it actually can hurt the heart of God. And that's why Hosea is so beautiful, that God, even with a broken heart, can turn and say, I'm going to still pour my love out on them, because as the name of Hosea, it's God who is our Savior. Chapter 1, excuse me, um, chapter 2, I want to read Hosea chapter 2 in verse 8. I'm sorry about that. That's, that's wrong. Chapter 2, verse 14. And God says this to the people of Israel through the prophet. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer me as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And God is saying, I am going to be the vineyard in her life. She will no longer need to go to the bales for her fruit, for her nourishment, for her enjoyment. 
I, God, will bring her out of that place of judgment, and I will be her God, and I will provide all that she needs. And so we can, as believers, look at our relationship with God and live in this way that if it's about my righteousness or my doing right or my uh, own goodness or personhood, and that that was what justifies me to bring me toward relationship with God, we will live this life that's constantly back and forth in the prostitute relationship because we don't have what it takes to be perfect. But if instead we'll recognize his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his love for us, we can stand as sons and daughters knowing that we've been redeemed by a God who desperately loves us and has called us to be his own and walk in actual, deep, intimate relationship with God. And the promise is a prophetic promise that through Christ that we as believers can live in a dynamic, real relationship with God, that we live in forgiveness, that we live in grace, that we live in his unconditional love, that we live in the benefit of of the cross because of his great love for us and that's what redeems us and restores us and brings us life our provisions found in it our hope is found in it our new wine is found in it all of the things that the world calls us to pursue outside of those places look dim and diminish to the greatness of his grace and his love for us in every area of our life and our relationships and our finances and our families He's a good God, and he loves you this morning. Amen? Why don't you stand up with me, Ben? You can come up. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We really believe that God wants you to know him in a personal and tangible way. If there's any way we can assist your journey, please reach out to kcnyc.org.